You're listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. We have a treat for you today. We do, we do, because Dr. Rutland not only accepted the invitation to, to speak at our marriage conference, and man, he blew us away yesterday in the two sessions that, that he led yesterday, um, so much better than that, that first night speaker. I mean, this guy was just amazing. Um, but, but he agreed to stay over and, and preach both services today. And, and I just want to kind of tell you, I gave an introduction at, at the marriage conference, but for some of you that were, were not here, let me tell you what we have here. And because this guy, he, he's an icon in the faith. He'll never call himself that, but he has, I have gleaned from his ministry for years. I'm in my 20, uh, 25th year of ministry, and this guy, since day one, I remember attending a conference at the, the mega church that he pastored in Orlando, Calvary. And I, I, I remember attending a conference there and, and just re- thinking to myself, man, God has just blessed this man's ministry, and I just want to glean from it. And throughout the years, our paths have crossed numerous times at different conferences and things. And you, you have such a great opportunity to glean from him today. Uh, Dr. Rutland um, was also the president of Southeastern University at a time when they needed leadership really bad. And, and God used him there for 10 years. And then ORU, Oral Roberts University, came knocking, and they needed him really bad. And he went to ORU in Tulsa and, and I, in my opinion, just helped bail them out. I mean, God did some amazing things. Um, he also leads National Institute of Christian Leadership, NICL, which Mandy and I are, are graduates of. We, we attended that with Dr. Rutland, which really opened up a door for us to begin a, a friendship. And, and we, we were so blessed by NICL. And, and I'll, I'll never take for granted the lessons that, that we learned from what I consider a legend. I mean, I really do. I'm not just saying that. I'm, I mean that from my heart. And, um, but probably his, his greatest achievement, and if you were to ask him, um, has been through global, global servants. Um, Dr. Mark and, and his wife, Allison, they founded this organization, and it's making an impact worldwide. For decades now, it has made an impact worldwide. And later on, I'm going to come back up because he has not asked for a dime. He, he is here not taking a dime for the conference or for today. And here's all he asked me to do. He said, I want you to, to give towards... Our, our House of Grace. Did I get that right? House of Grace. House of Grace in, in northern Thailand and West Africa. These girls' homes are making a huge difference in, in the lives of young ladies that are, are... They're saving them from human trafficking in societies that, that are just not healthy for young ladies to be brought up in. But there's, there's hope because of what they're doing. And, and hundreds of girls have gone through these homes. And we're excited to partner with them. I'll come back in a little while and tell you how you can help us with that. But um, I'm so excited for you. I've already heard this message in first service. We need this message. This is, this is powerful. And so I, I want you to put your hands together and make Dr. Mark Rutland feel welcome here today. Good morning. Thank you. Well, I've had a wonderful weekend already. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> no, it's nothing. It's COVID. It's all right. It's, um, the uh, 
the folks that came, where, where, let me see the hands of those that were at the couples conference this weekend. Okay, remember this, what happens at the couple conference stays at the couples conference. We were dignified and, and you hear the laughter. This is the kind of respect I, I get. Well, it's great to be. And I finally come to the second service. I understand this is where the Christians come. Um, we, we had to deal with these heathens at the first service, but uh, I'm glad to see you all here. Um, I haven't had a great time. I love this church, uh, and I, I love the pastoral family that God has sent, not just simply Rocky and his wife, but the whole family. Aren't they a blessing to this church? Aren't they wonderful? I know you're grateful. I know you're grateful. I want to just say one word uh, and follow up on what Pastor Rocky said. I, uh, I don't take anything. I, I, my arrangement with the National Institute of Christian Leadership, I receive a salary as the executive director of the NICL, which is one of the ministries of Global Servants. We started Global Servants and now my son is the president, so actually I now work for my son as the executive director of NICL. Everything that I bring in, in any ministry source at all, uh, preaching, teaching, the uh, tuition at the NICL, all books. Every, I've sold hundreds of thousands of books worldwide, all the royalties, everything. All that goes 100% to Global Servants, particularly to the Houses of Grace. The Evidently... The people at the first service didn't care anything about you at all because I just went by the book table and uh, two of the books are sold out. Uh, there is, one, there is um, one book left, or not a book, but one, one title left. It's called Of Kings and Prophets. It's, a, it's our newest book. It's there. I hope you will get it and enjoy it. It's about the conflict between supernatural authority and secular power. And uh, I hope that you will enjoy the book. It's there. If you would like the others, David the Great was the, uh, one of the others that was here. One about the healing of damaged emotions called The Courage to Be Healed. And I have 19 books in total. You can get those online, of course, wherever you buy books. You can go to drmarkrutland.com and get them there. We'll get them in the mail to you quickly. But I do hope that when the service is over, you'll dash out there. There's look to me like maybe there were nine or ten books left. And I hope you'll get those and enjoy those books and know that you are contributing to our little girls in two different continents. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to the book of Zechariah. It is a powerful little book, one of the minor prophets. Uh, Go to the book of Matthew and turn left. Uh, If you start at Genesis, you're going to be a while. It's right near the end of the Old Testament. It's a a shame that it isn't read and studied more than it is because it is a book that is filled with very powerful uh, language and images and many prophetic um, statements of messianic presence. Uh, The passage I want to read today is from the fourth chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. if you're if you going to follow me in a, a different version, I'm going to read from KJV uh, this morning, the King James Version. I'm not hung up on what version you use. I, you don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. One will be given you when you get there. <laughs> 
but why stand in that long, embarrassing line? No, I'm, I'm just teasing. I'm always afraid somebody in the back will say, amen, brother, amen. And the, the, uh, the King James Bible, which sounds so old-timey and offends so many, I, I was 16 years a university president. I was surrounded by young adults. And they always used to say, President Rutland, why do you always read from the King James Bible? Well, in the first place is loyalty. I, w- I went to high school with King James. And... <laughs> Jimmy, we called him Jimmy. He wasn't, he wasn't a king in high school. So the other thing is the, the flowery Shakespearean language of the King James Bible that offends everybody else, it appeals to my theatrical heart. I, I like all the these and thous. I, I can't get used to Jesus coming down to the Sea of Galilee and saying to the disciples, it's happening, dudes. It's just me. So uh, I'm going to read from King James, but in this particular passage, there is a more important reason. There is a word, the Hebrew word means grace, it's translated elsewhere grace, but for some reason, inexplicably, in this passage, some of the modern translations, I think NIV in particular, translate it, God bless it. And I'm, I'm not upset with that. I mean, if God graces something, he does bless it, right? So I can see that. But I'm speaking today on grace, and so I want to read from the passage that uses the word grace in it. So I'll be reading from King James, and you're free to follow me in whatever cheap communist imitation you've got. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Now pause a moment. Zerubbabel was the prince during the restoration, an Old Testament type for Jesus, the prince of restoration. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Pause again. Mountain in prophetic writing may mean all kinds of things. What it almost never means is mountain. (laughs) What it can mean is a a force, an agency of power, like an army or something like that, a dynasty or something. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. So here's the revised Rutland translation. Who do you think you are, geopolitical forces of the present age? Who do you think you are? Dictators and tyrants and kings and armies. When Jesus shows up, you'll be as flat as a tortilla. (laughs) Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, His hands shall also finish it. Don't you see that that's basically a New Testament verse? The Lord, he who hath begun a good work in you, also shall complete it, shall finish it. He who hath laid the foundation of the tabernacle that will be in the place of the mountain will also bring it to completion, his hands. Now lay your hands on your Bible, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with our hands on the word, and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication. 
rush in over the threshold of our soul. Speak to us. Whether we want to hear it or not, deal with us, O Lord, that when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In the mighty name of Jesus, the strong Son of God, amen. Amen and amen. I have... uh, Spent the greater part of my life, I've been in the ministry more than 50 years, and I've spent the greater part of that adult career, ministry, as a student of the discipline of communication in in every aspect that I could find it, in in the written word, uh, 18 or 19 books, in preaching and teaching, on radio and television, mass communication, um, in in linguistics, trying to learn language, uh, the, the essence of communication. I wanted to know why it worked, when it worked, what, what, what made it happen, when it went south, what went wrong. Now I know what some of you are thinking. If he spent 50 years studying communication, seems like he'd be better at it. But you don't know how bad I might have been. Here's what I have learned. We're one to boil the discipline of communication for a thousand years. The, the cream that would rise to, this, to the top would simply be four things. The right message to the right party in the right way at the right time. The right message to the right party in the right way at the right time. If you get any of those four variables wrong, it can all go wrong, really wrong, really fast. You can think that you're transmitting a perfectly clear message, but the message that is received may not be what you transmitted, and the response it elicits may not be at all what you hoped for. Every married man in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. You can think that you are transmitting a positive message, and you can tell from the look on her face that while you're talking, the ice is cracking under your feet. (laughs) Part of the reason can be the communication barriers of people using words to mean different things. That is particularly important and a challenge when it comes to generational differences because the English language, all language, I suppose, but the English language in particular is changing, evolving, or more particularly, devolving. And and technology has exacerbated the speed of that devolution. There are words that we use now that don't mean the same thing they did when I was young. I see a lot of young people here, and I have a word of prophecy for you. There are words that you use right now. If you live to my advanced antiquity and Jesus tarries, you may still use those words, but they won't mean the same thing. I can give you an example. I'm probably the oldest person in the room, but let me ask if there's anybody else here that remembers when gay meant happy. Anybody remember that? I want gay back. Who stole gay? When I was a kid, gay had nothing to do with orientation. It was about disposition. I'd go to a party. I'd come home. My mother would say, how was the party? I said, it was great. Everybody there was gay. (laughs) She wasn't worried. We were just happy. What about the Christmas song? You sing it all the time. Don we now our gay apparel? That doesn't mean Christmas in drag. (laughs) That means we're just happy at the birth of Christ. Sometimes 
the generation, that generational gap happens so fast that you can't keep up with it. I was preaching recently in California, which is evidently where the English language will be destroyed. And <laughs> I was speaking to a high school audience, a huge auditorium packed with high school kids. And I don't know when I've ever spoken to a group that was more enthusiastic. They were just with it from the opening moment. And afterward, I was talking with some boys down at the front, just chatting. And the first boy said, Dr. Mark, he said, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. But you see, baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you are one sick dude. One can only sense my level of personal affirmation. I remember early on in life setting a sort of a life goal of becoming a really sick dude. The fourth boy, evidently not content with these low-altitude compliments, he said, you are not just sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no clue. I teach the NICL, the National Institute of Christian Leadership, which your leadership went to, and I had some years ago a young man come through there who now pastors a hip-hop church, whatever that is. And so I thought if anybody would know what the OG of Crunk was, it would be him. I called him. I said, Tommy, somebody just told me I was the OG of Crunk. What does that mean? Oh, he said, OG, it means original gangster. I said, so he told me I'm the original gangster of Crunk? He said, yes. I said, Tommy, see, what I want to know is what did it mean? Oh, he said, I assumed you knew what crunk meant. He said, I, was, I thought you just want to know what OG stood for. I said, no, no, I, I, I don't understand any of it. <laughs> he said, well, it means uh, you beat a Mac Daddy. I said, no, Tommy, you see what I'm looking for is something more along the lines of a definition. He said, I'm trying to tell you, Dr. Mark. He said, it means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. If that happens to any word, there is a certain level of tragedy attached. Because whether you think about it or not, we think in words. And therefore, when a society or a culture suffers the loss or, or corruption of its functional vocabulary, it loses to one extent or another its ability to think. And therefore, we may feel things at a deep emotional level, but act out of our frustration and inability to express that. I can give you a very basic example. Little boy who thinks a brown-eyed girl next to him is the cutest number he has ever met. And he wants to tell her there in the fifth grade, you are beautiful and I like you and I want you to be my girlfriend, but he can't think of the words, so he punches her in the mouth. <laughs> that can actually happen in a whole society. I used to preach uh, for some years the Minneapolis Soul Fest. It was an, it was an 
inner city urban outreach. We had a great big platform. It had huge banks of speakers and a band. We'd blast the music out about nine decibels above the level where all the birds in the air died. And, <laughs> and uh, then we'd get a crowd and I'd preach and people would come forward. The platform was taller than this one, something like this. So when the people came forward at the invitation, the altars workers just knelt on the apron of the platform and worked with them. One girl came and knelt right here right in front of the podium, and nobody saw her. She put her little forehead over on the edge of the stage. Her hair fell down, and I realized nobody saw her, so I just knelt down. I said, Miss, you want me to pray with you? She didn't even look up. She said, Mr., I need help. I said, don't you want the Lord to come into your life? She said, yes. I said, now pray with me. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to pray with me. And I began, Heavenly Father. She didn't say anything. I said, Miss, listen to me. What I want you to do, I'm going to say the words, and I want you to say them after me. Father in heaven. She didn't say anything. I said, Miss, what's the problem? And this is the first time she looked up. This eye was swollen completely shut. She had a terrible bruise down across their cheekbone, and her lip was split right there till I could see her teeth. Tears streaming down her little battered face. She said, Mr., I got all the father I can handle. And I realized she had no resistance to the concept of the grace of God. But it was going to have to be warped around her misapprehension of fatherhood. The issue was not a resistance to God. It was vocabulary. Now, when that happens to our functional biblical vocabulary, what can happen then is that we can't think clearly about God and therefore we can't talk to each other about God because our words may have been hijacked by contemporaneity. One such word, and the word I want to zero in on now, is grace. Grace in the modern church has come to mean almost everything and therefore it's come to mean almost nothing. We use it like agape mayonnaise. If you slop enough of it on anything, it can make rancid ham taste good. Isn't it fascinating that one of the most powerful images of grace in the whole Bible is here in the Old Testament? Is it just me? I tend to think of grace as a largely or perhaps even exclusively New Testament reality, that the New Testament is about grace and the Old Testament's about law. But this graphic, powerful image of healing grace is not only in the Old Testament, but in a minor prophet. The image is this. It is of us as saved, born-again Christians who have been saved by grace. We know we're saved by grace. One of the most sacrosanct verses in the entire evangelical world is, no one is saved by works lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. In other words, even the faith to get saved is a work of grace. So we know that we're saved. The problem is that we see saving grace as a momentary historical event, a theological happening, an experiential moment. I'm saved by grace. My name is written in the Lamb's book. My sins are under the blood. If I died from this moment on, I know I'm going to heaven. But now my Savior retreats to the other side of some mountain in my life. And until that mountain is removed, 
I cannot have the face-to-face, intimate relationship with him that I want. I see myself as saved. Now I turn to approach Jesus, and a mountain in my life looms. It's, what is the mountain? It's different in every life. Some, it's hurt, hate, bitterness, childhood experience of some kind, racial prejudice, uh, chronic a sin of some kind, an addiction, a bondage, whatever it is, it's different in every life. But now I turn and take possession of that mountain. Saved by grace, I'm going to move the mountain with self-effort. Shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. This year, I'll move this mountain if it kills me. The only problem is what? It'll kill you. If it doesn't put you right straight in a religious loony bin first, rocking back and forth in a straitjacket and humming Jesus loves me, because you can't move the mountain. It is impregnable. It's unassailable. You can't get over it. You can't get around it. It's a, it's a pole-to-pole escarpment. You can't tunnel under it. So year after year after year, we hammer on the mountain, chipping away at it until in deep personal frustration, some people then quit. They drop out. Almost everyone in the church here today knows somebody that won't come to church anymore. They won't come to church or they say they're not even Christians anymore. They're functional atheists and they're angry about it. Why? It's because they're actually angry at themselves. They blame it on everything else. I don't like the church. It's cold in there. I don't like the music. The preacher wears a beard. I'm not going to a church where the preacher wears a beard. But actually, they're angry at themselves. And so in a kind of twisted idealism, they say, I won't go to church with that mountain in my life. So what do they do? They stay home with the mountain in their lives. So the place where they are most likely to get the mountain moved, they avoid. Others take a different approach. They drape the mountain in camouflage. They decide to opt for denial. They drag the camo-draped mountain behind them like a ball and chain, and they meet other people coming across the parking lot dragging their camo-draped mountains. And we enter into a mutually agreed-upon covenant of suspended disbelief. Say, do you see my mountain? Nay, brother, thou hast no mountain. (laughs) What about me? No mountain there. Let's go to church. And so in the spiritual domain... Above our heads, there may remain a veritable sierra of unresolved issues. Others, and thank God this is most of us, at some point or another, fall in defeat at the foot of the mountain and cry out to Jesus on the other side. Lord, are you over there? Because this sucker won't budge. I've done everything I know to do, and I quit. What do you have to say to that? And what we think is that from the other side of the mountain, we're going to get a tongue lashing because we have projected onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. So we think from the other side of the mountain, he's going to say, you big fat sissy. If you can't play with pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. Pull your socks up and hit that mountain again. 
I played high school football, by the way, right at the end of the Civil War. And <laughs> it is rude to laugh at me. <laughs> and I, I played in the old days. I don't see any men here that are old enough to remember this. I played before there was platoon football. You didn't have offensive and defensive specialists. You had to play both ways. Well, there were only 19 boys in the high school. You just put your helmet on and played till you died. And I, I played quarterback on offense, but I played free safety on defense. I dreaded our inner squad scrimmages more than any high school game we played because the coach's son was the tailback on our team, and he was the most vicious and lethal runner I've ever attempted to tackle in my life. If Bobby got through into the deep secondary, he came at you all helmet and knees and demons. And I was a gentleman. I didn't want to impede Bobby's path to glory. I would have escorted him into the end zone. Bobby was on a search and destroy mission. He would chase me. Finally, I said to him, what is up with you? You're not the biggest guy I've ever tackled. You're not even the fastest runner in our own backfield. I, I hate tackling you. What's up with that? He said, oh, you want to know what's up with that? Come home with me after school today. I was shocked. Nobody went home with Bobby. Bobby didn't have a friend in the world. Not only was he a vicious and lethal runner, he was a vicious and lethal human being. We were all a little scared of Bobby. I went home with him after school, and we went into his garage, and he pulled down the metal garage door, and he said, there's your answer. And about waist tile all across there, it looked like somebody had been hitting him with a sledgehammer. He said, when I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad put a helmet on my head and made me bend over at the waist and run into that garage door with all my might. 365 days a year, birthday, Christmas, New Year's, no exceptions. And he said, any day I didn't hit it hard enough to please him, he'd hit my legs with a braided whistle strap. He said, you know, you run into a metal garage door 365 days a year for about five years, and 170 pounds safety just don't look like much. Well, no wonder he was a vicious runner. And no wonder he was a vicious and lethal human being. That is child abuse of the worst order. That's a father forcing his son to attempt something that they both know is impossible. He causes him to run at that garage door every day. They both know he'll never break through. No matter how he muscles up in the weight room, no matter how perfectly he goes into a three-point stance or how hard he hits it, he's never going through. And all that frustration builds up in the psyche of an adolescent male, and then he focuses it on the opposition on the football field for his own glory as a coach. Shame, shame. Is that your Jesus? Because if that's your Jesus, your Jesus is my devil. Do you honestly believe that Jesus is coming along behind Christians with the braided whistle strap of Protestant works righteousness, slashing our legs? Pray better, fast more, be a better Christian, move that mountain. Frankly, the ministry is not exempt. There are many, many preachers who are trying to preach their way out from under that lash. Be a better preacher. Build a bigger church. Build a taller steeple. But we, we think Jesus is the one lashing us when all the time it's us. God is a gentleman. 
He stands right on the parapet of heaven. If you want to run at that mountain, he'll stand there with the angels at his elbows and watch you. He'll say, well, here he comes again. This boy is going to hurt himself. And he's like, oh, that's going to leave a mark. So we cry out. We fall at the foot of the mountain and we cry out, Lord, are you over there? Because I quit. Do you hear me? I quit. But from the other side of the mountain comes words we never thought we'd hear. Good. That's what I've been waiting on was for you to quit. Now stand back. And then it says Jesus shouts. It's one of the few passages of Scripture in the Bible where he shouts. He shouts. What does he shout? Do better. Hit it harder. Follow the rules. Get holy. Move that mountain. No, he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And what does he shout? Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. The liberal humanist will tell you that grace means God doesn't care about the mountain. That he kind of nudges the angels in the ribs and winks and says, well, boys will be boys. But that condemns us to the destructiveness of the mountain in our lives. If God doesn't care about the mountain, it means he doesn't care about us because he doesn't care about what the mountain does in us. God forbid. The legalist, the holiness legalist says, grace means God will finally make you strong enough to move the mountain. But that condemns us to the frustration of failure because the Bible says it's not by might nor by power. You will never move that mountain. Grace doesn't mean either of those. Grace means God wants the mountain out of our lives. But he wants to move it himself. He wants us to surrender the mountain to him and let him do the operation of grace. Grace is not just to get saved and spend the rest of our frustrated Christianity hammering away at the mountains. Grace is every single step, every breath, every motion, every minute, every day. It's all grace. It's all grace all the way. There's no place where Jesus takes his hands off the wheel and says, all right, big boy, it's up to you. It's all grace. The problem is, when we take possession of that mountain and own it, we cut ourselves off from the operation, the daily operation of grace. And as a result, can I coin this phrase? We disgrace ourselves. We degrace ourselves. We ungrace ourselves. And it makes us graceless. You cannot give away what you don't have. When there are people that are angry and bitter and critical and judgmental, they nitpick at everything. Nothing is ever right. Something is wrong in that life, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. What is wrong? The reservoir of grace has drained out. And as a result, they're living disgraceful lives. And that disgrace pours out on everybody around them. There are whole churches that are disgraceful, living in judgment and anger and bitterness, picking at everything, criticizing everything. Disgraceful people. 
Look, I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm not saying they won't go to heaven when they die. They get saved and they're angry and judgmental and graceless. I'm not saying they're not going to heaven when they die. I'm just saying the sooner, the better. (laughs) Is that the way we're supposed to live? Is that the way we're supposed to relate to one another? Whole churches can be like that. I, I pastored the church, Pastor Rocky mentioned in Orlando, a huge church, 8,000 members, something like that. You think when somebody in your church is mad at you, you got thousands of members or even hundreds of members, and somebody gets mad and wants to leave the church, you think it's not a statistical issue, it's an emotional issue, and it hurts you. So this guy came to me one Sunday, I preached, and what you think is some level of anointing, and then you go out of the lobby to shake hands, and this guy came to me, he was so angry, he couldn't even talk plain. I thought he was speaking in tongues. He came, he said, <laughs> he said, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? He said, because of the lie that you told in the pulpit this morning. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I heard you, I heard you. He said, you talked about a battle that happened in World War I, and you said that battle happened in 1918. He said, I happen to be something of an expert in American military history, and I know that battle happened in 1917. He said, a man that uh, lie about a thing like that will lie about anything, and I can't stay in the church where there's a liar in the pulpit. I said, well, bye. No, I mean, adios. I, I cannot fix that for you. When you begin to take mistakes and turn them into lies, it's not that person who is disgraceful. It's you. The disgrace is the other way. Happily, that's not the way most Christians are. Let me tell you about another man in the same church, an attorney who's still my great friend, my lifetime friend. Every Sunday morning... Every sermon I ever preached that whole time I was at that church, morning, night, Wednesday night, every time I preached, he came to me and he said, oh, Pastor Rutland, he said, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. Every time. That's the greatest sermon I've ever heard. Well, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I know that nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece three times a week, year after year after year after year. I know that cognitively. But I like that lawyer lying to me. When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. I wanted some grace. I know what you're thinking. I can read your minds. You're saying, oh, we, we can't do that with Pastor Rocky. We pump his ego up. Oh, we can't pump him like that. Go on and pump. There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. After 50 years in the ministry, I've now decided that all of Christendom is actually divided into only two tribes, pumpers and poppers. (laughs) I believe that the eyes of God move to and fro through the earth looking for a church full of pumpers where he can pour out his healing grace. But it's not just the pastor or the church that we disgrace. We disgrace our own families. We disgrace our own families. We disgrace our children. It's, it's tragic. 
parents pick at them and pry at them and criticize them over circumstantial things. They can't just be okay. I remember when we came home from Africa, our little boy was nine years old. He wanted to be an American. He wanted to do an American thing. He joined the Little League. Oh, God, what a demonic experience. I don't mean the little boys. They were cute. I'm talking about the dads. Some big old fat slob sitting up in the stands yelling at his own son in public, keep your eye on the ball, stupid. I just wanted to climb up there and say, hey, keep your eye on this, sport. And I was the, uh, the president at Oral Roberts University. A man came to see me and said, I want to talk to you about my son. Well, I had thousands of students. I didn't know all of them. And he told me his name. I said, oh, I know your son. What a wonderful boy. He was a, a Christian presence on our campus. I said, oh, I happen to know him. What a great kid. He said, yeah, yeah, that's not why I'm here. I said, well, why are you here? He said, it's that earring. He said, I want you to make him take that earring out. He said, I can't even see him. When he walks in the room, I can't even see my son anymore. All I can see is that earring. I want you to make him take it out. I wanted to say, you know, you've had him 18 years. I've had him three semesters. Why is this my job? But I didn't feel that, that he was in a frame of mind to listen to that line of reasoning. So the next day, I called the boy in my office. I said, do you know who was here yesterday? He said, yes. And I know why he was here. He wants you to make me take this earring out. I said, son, your dad is a piece of work. He said, he, this earring, it, it, it just sticks in his craw. We have no relationship left at all because of this earring. I said, isn't that stupid? He said, it is stupid to let an earring stand between you and somebody you love. I said, that's so immature. He said, it's immature and it's selfish. I said, it is selfish to let an earring destroy a relationship with someone you love. He said, it is selfish. Oh, he said, I know what you're doing. I said, look, son, if you're going to have any relationship left, one of you is going to have to be an adult. And I met your dad. <laughs> he said, you know, I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it that way. He said, I put it always on my dad. He reached up. I've never been so proud of a college boy. Took that earring out of his ear, put it on my coffee table in my office. He said, my father will never see that earring again. I'm old. Look up here. I'm in touch with reality. And I will be honest with you. I still struggle with boys wearing earrings. Am I, am I the only one? You ever just want to take that out of your ear and give it to your sister? And on the other hand, how big of a deal can that be to allow something like that in the life of someone that you love to destroy your relationship is disgraceful. It's disgraceful. Goes the other way too. Goes the other way too. I'm going to speak to the young people here. Do you ever see a family of three, father, mother, and a little boy or a little girl come in and sit at a table for four, and about five minutes later, the teenage son will come in? I'm not with these people. They kidnapped me. 
And he sits at the table with his chair turned sideways and he won't talk. It's disgraceful. He's disgracing his family. And what he doesn't understand is that that makes him, even to his own peers, it makes him seem immature and unattractive. If he could only understand, if he would come in with them, with grace and joy, this is my family. The little fat man who's bald. That's not only my father, that's my future. The chubby little lady, she's the one that changed my diapers. And the little boy biting on his arm, that's my little brother. We're working on him. Grace is winsome and attractive, and it works, it works in every way. We not only disgrace our kids, we disgrace our spouses. We disgrace our spouses. Where are all the married men in the room? Wave to me, all the married men. Listen, I'm going to help you, boys. This was worth the price of a mission right here. Here it is. When your wife walks out with that new dress that she's modeling, she bought that dress at the shopping mall. She's not just showing you the dress. She's modeling it for you. She comes out, she says, look what I bought at the mall today. She didn't want you to peer over the top of the sports page. How much did that set me back? I'm going to confiscate your credit card. She's modeling that dress for you. She says, look what I bought at the mall today. You throw that newspaper aside and jump to your feet and say, whoa, whoa, baby, look at you. You look like a million bucks in that dress. You wear that on Wednesday night, and we're going to be late to prayer meeting. Now, that, that's, that's grace. And girls, I'm going to help you. Where are all the married women here? Listen, wave hand. Listen, your husband is like God in one way. Saw one lady in the back say, this is why I came right here. This is. No, the Bible says God has numbered the hairs on your husband's head. So has your husband. And he doesn't need you to remind him that the number is diminishing perennially. Look, I travel all the time. I'm, I travel all over the United States and God-forsaken foreign countries like Michigan and places. And, and I, when I start to leave, my wife of nearly 55 years, this summer, 55 years, she puts her little hands on my face and she says, Oh, Mark, you are the handsomest, sexiest man I've ever known. Look, look up here. I live in the real world. But a lawyer and a wife who will both lie to you is grace. You think I want her to tell me, gee, you're really short and getting chubby and quite thin on the hair. No, I want her to tell me that I'm sexy and handsome, and I choose to believe it. That's the operation of grace. You know, not only do we disgrace our churches and our preachers and our families, worst of all, we disgrace ourselves. We hold ourselves in contempt for both fundamental and superficial issues. We judge ourselves. We stare into the full-length mirror of self-evaluation, and we despise what we see. We say, look at you. What happened to you? 
where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fat? <laughs> High school kids do the same thing. They stare into the mirror of self-evaluation and say, oh, you're so stupid. Oh, you're not attractive. Oh, you're not popular. We, we disgrace ourselves. We disgrace ourselves. We don't receive grace for ourselves. Look, I'm not trying to run your people off, Pastor, but you do understand this is not real Christianity. Surely you know that, right? I mean, this church. I've never committed a really venal sin in church. This is church. Church is to prepare you for real Christianity. Real Christianity is not in here on Sunday morning. It's Tuesday morning when nobody's looking at you and you're late to, church, late to work and you rush out and jump in your truck and slam your hand in the door of your truck. That's real. And right there you find out whether there's any grace left in your reservoir. You say, oh, Ford Motor Company, I'm getting an attorney. Ford's going down. Or you can blame yourself. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. <laughs> or more often, you can even blame God. Well, you've done it to me again. This is what I've come to expect. Or you could lift that mangled paw aloft and say, grace be unto thee. Listen, everybody raises up under the kitchen cabinet and knocks his brains out at least once in their lifetime. You're not exempt. So you raise up under that kitchen cabinet and knock yourself silly and your wife giggles. You get all, what? That's not, that's not funny. That is, that is not funny. And your wife is thinking, yeah, that's pretty funny. Look, when you raise up under the kitchen cabinet or slam your hand in the truck, everybody else is going to laugh. Laugh first. That's grace. Grant yourself grace. You, you keep thinking you're smarter than the rest of us. No, you're not. There, there are some things in life for which the only mature emotional response the only spiritually authentic response is a good belly laugh. There's some stuff in life that's funny. There's some stuff about you that's funny. The rest of us can all see it. You need to get in on the joke. Take yourself and your life and your situation, your circumstance so seriously that it disgraces everybody around you, does inestimable damage. Grace for yourself, grace for life. Well, you're a jolly crew. I'm going to tell you one of the funniest church stories I've ever heard. I can't, I can't tell this in some churches. There are churches where laughter has never touched this face. But you are obviously a jolly crew with a jolly pastor, so I'm going to tell you. Here it is. I have a good friend who pastors in another Pentecostal denomination, not yours. And he invited, he tells me this story is true. Who knows, he's a minister. But 
he told me that he invited an evangelist to preach at his church. And he had one of these women in his church, a self-proclaimed prophetess. You know, nobody can hear from God but them. They've got the red phone to heaven. I don't know if you have any of these people. No? Oh, we'll send you some. Um, <laughs> we have some to spare. <laughs> and into every life, a little rain must fall. So she came to the pastor, and she said God had revealed to her that the evangelist wasn't supposed to come. The pastor said exactly what he should have said. He said, well, God hadn't revealed it to me, and until he does, he's coming. I've invited him. He's coming. I'm not asking you to affirm it or agree with me or even attend, but he's coming. She wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. The opening night of the revival, the evangelist stood up to preach. He'd been preaching about five minutes, and that lady stepped out in the center aisle and raised her hand and pointed her finger in the evangelist's face and said, Whoa, thus saith the Lord, thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger. But thou art not a humdinger, saith the Lord. Thou art a dinger. I said, my God, Pastor, what did you do? He said, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing in life had prepared me for that moment And he said, I just froze. He said it was the evangelist that saved the day. He looked at her for a moment, and then he just put his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. (laughs) And people over here laughing, over there laughing, and then the musicians started laughing. That's usually where the problem is. And and (laughs) laughter in a church will feed itself. And they started laughing and laughing. Just when that laughter reached a crescendo, that lady slammed her Bible shut and went up the aisle. When she got to the exit sign, she said, I'll never darken the doors of this church again. The pastor told me, he said, Dr. Utland, it was the hour of deliverance. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's easy to miss. That old lady was right about one thing. That's the crazy thing. She was actually right about one thing. People always want a word from God. Do you get these people? Oh, I'm in airport somewhere, and they rush up to me with this deer in the headlights look. And usually after I've been on Christian television, and that brings the loonies out, and (laughs) they rush up to me and they say, is that you, Dr. Mark? Is that you? Do you have a word for me? I always say, yes, read your Bible. So everybody always wants a word from God. So I've got a word from God for you. Look right up here. Everybody over here. Look, look up here. Thus saith the Lord, thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. You all too. Look up here, Rocky. You need this too. Thou art dingers too, saith the Lord. Thou hast done dinger stuff. Thou art not finished. But saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness, and I love thee just the same. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Think of all the wasted psycho-emotional, spiritual, and relational energy that we spend trying to convince each other and ourselves that we're humdingers. And nobody ever believed it anyway. We're definitely not going to convince God when we release ourselves into the grace of God. He begins to replenish the reservoir of grace in us so it can pour out on the people around us, in our families, and at our workplace, and in our churches. 
a fountain of grace because the grace that fills me becomes too much for me to contain. And grace is what washes over on people around us. Well, let me close with this. Sort of like the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. He said finally and wrote four more chapters. (laughs) Actually, this is it. What if somebody came in here today and they said, I don't know anything about God. I don't know anything about Christianity at all. We gave them a Bible and said, go home and read this. Read, Read the Bible. And they begin to read. And faith begins to build. Hope begins to arise. They read about the resurrection. They read, they read about the church. They, they begin to think there's hope for my life. What if they got to the end of the Bible and the last sentence of the Bible? Think about it. The last thing anybody says to you is important. What is God's last word? What if they got to the end of the Bible and the last sentence in the Bible said, I was just joking. I hate the bunch of you. <laughs> is it just me? Or what if it said, I'm going to let some of you come to heaven and some of you are going to hell, but I'm not going to tell you the basis on which I decide. That's terrifying, isn't it? But you read to the end of the whole Bible in the last verse, it's as though God says, look, I've been saying this from the Garden of Eden. I said it through the law. I said it through the prophets. I said it through my son. I said it in the cross. I said it in the resurrection. I said it in the letters. I said it in the church. I've said it on every page. Why can't you hear me? Now I'm going to say, this is my last word on the subject. And the whole Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, all of you, all the time, not just at salvation, until the last breath you breathe and in heaven when you wake up in glory, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's amazing grace. God bless you, everybody, and God bless this precious church. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.